0: The passage of scripture that we will be reading today is 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you need to borrow a Bible from us, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12 on page 901 of those Bibles. The word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There Paul writes, "Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed" You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the word of God. You may be seated. It's not unusual for people to take personality tests as though you needed some sort of algorithm to tell you that you didn't like the presence of other people or that you get irrationally excited by having conversations with people that you've never met before. Introverts and extroverts already know who they are, and generally speaking, people know the kinds of things that they like and don't like in this world, but nevertheless, they run out to take the Briggs-Meyer test or to find their Enneagram number or whatever it is. But this type of thing isn't just saved for the worldly evaluation of people and the kind of persons that they might be back in my day, which is now just like a, I call it the Wonder Years segment. Wonder Years was 20 years afterwards, and now going back 20 years, this is where we are Like Wonder Years would be set in 2004, if you can believe that now, which is sad. I'm old. Back in my day, we did one thing to determine spiritual gifts. We had inventories. You would sit down and you would would have these questionnaires that were scientifically and, and rigorously figured out to tell you absolutely nothing. But nevertheless, you took it anyways because this wonderful machine was going to tell you exactly what the Spirit had gifted you with they weren't quite that bold they were like hey this is likely where your spiritual gift lies but you would still sit down and fill out this sort of form to tell you and give answers to these sorts of things this always seemed wrong to me but i want to be clear why it seemed wrong to me not because i i had a better understanding of what was supposed to happen but just because i saw things somewhat differently they those tests assumed that the spiritual gifting that you had was related to some sort of latent ability that you had or some desire in your own life that you had. I frankly, quite unconsciously, I'm sure, but I I viewed it more like Super Mario Brothers, right? So he's just a normal little guy, and then he, he runs into a mushroom, and now he's like three times larger than he was before, and he runs into this fire plant, and now he can throw balls of fire like Jerry Lee Lewis, and, and he runs into a star, and now he's invincible except for gravity, and and none of that was present in him, right? It wasn't something that he had in him. When you give sports analogies, people tell you when you're in preaching, class, don't do sports analogies. So for those of you who don't like sports and don't like video games, I'll try and quote Tolkien at some point in time, okay? But just, this is what you get this morning. So None of that was an ability that was in him. It was given to him by the outside. It wasn't a latent ability that he had. It was sort of provided to him. That's how I always viewed spiritual gifts. It seemed like these were things that the Lord just kind of zapped you with, right? That you all of a sudden were able to do. That's why those tests never really sat well with me. To be honest, though, both of these are likely true in some respects and untrue in quite a number of others, the fact is, when we come to spiritual gifts, we are generally confused about what they are, who has them, how to use them, and why God has given them in the first place. The Corinthians were, were clearly confused. Chapter 12 begins an introduction to spiritual gifts that runs through the next three chapters, 12 and 13 and 14, all run on the same theme. If all three chapters are read together, it seems that there was probably one primary gift that the Corinthians were desiring, that they were misusing, and that they thought was above all the others, and that is the gift of tongues. Chapter 14 deals almost exclusively with tongues and how tongues are to be used, So what we have in chapter 12 is not that exactly. It's Paul zooming out. Before he talks in chapter 14 about how tongues ought to be used within the church, what he needs to do is talk more generally about gifts as they are in the church. All gifts, the purpose of gifts, the reason why the Spirit has come and given us gifts anyways. So in chapters 12 and 13, he's primarily doing that. Today in chapter 12, Paul talks in general then about the purpose of God's spiritual gifts that he has given to his people. So what should we think about these gifts? First, let's be very clear that the gifts are inferior to our salvation. Gifts are inferior to our salvation. Paul obviously starts out fairly generally. He he starts talking about the things of the spirit. The CSB probably has this more correctly. He's not originally talking first off about gifts, but just the things that come from the Spirit. He says, when you were pagans before, you were led by these mute idols, these things that couldn't talk. And yet, so oftentimes, what happens is in idolatry and paganism, in people who do not believe in Christianity, they will say things like, Jesus is accursed. He says this is part and parcel of what it means to be pagan because this Christianity is an exclusive thing and Jesus was indeed put on a Roman cross which both to the Romans and to the Jews was a sign of him being accursed. And so when you were a pagan, when you were just a Roman citizen, when you were just a a bloke who didn't know Christ, this is the kind of thing that you would utter. Not just pagans. Jews would have said this as well, but... He's talking mostly to Gentile people. Paul's counter to this is then whoever utters the words, Jesus is Lord, must do so only through the Holy Spirit. There's an immediate problem that we encounter with that, though, for we know many people who can open up their mouths and say the words, Jesus is Lord. Many can confess it. But those words, when they come out of their mouth, are by almost any standard other than the most meager and meaningless standards The people sometimes who utter them are are obviously outside of salvation. They they do not know the Lord. They do not have a love for the things of the Lord. They do not have a a deep, passionate change in their lives. There is no repentance. What they they are doing is simply uttering words. We're wrong to think that such a basic utterance can save you. Let's be honest. The devil can vocalize that. The devil can readily accept the truth that the Son of God has become incarnate in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. He can say those things, he can know those things, even if he shudders in doing so. Now, one of the responses, rightly, is that in Paul's day, there was a huge difference culturally between being able to say that in our day. Back then, there was a social cost to being able to say Jesus is Lord. It took social capital to do so. It would cost business and business associations, it would cost a number of family relationships. It would cost you in social standings. And even though we can read through this book and see that there are people in Corinth who are trying their level best to hang on all they can to that standing, they would have indeed known of this cost. And we simply don't have that, not nearly as badly. Christians can function just fine in social and economic and family circles, especially when that utterance coming off of your lips is just an utterance. If it doesn't change the way you live, if it doesn't change the way you act, if it doesn't change anything in your life, in this day and age, it costs you almost nothing. Therefore, we would think, hey, it was was harder in Paul's day to say this. And therefore, if anyone would utter those words, Jesus is Lord, it must be by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's true that uttering the words, Jesus is Lord, would have set you aside both from the Greeks and from the Jews. For the Jews, this was, again, When you hear Paul use this language, it's clearly a reference, I think, in the way that he uses it towards Jesus being God, which would have been wholly unpalatable to the Jews. And to the pagans, it it was a, a counterbalance to Caesar, because Caesar was Lord. So to say that Jesus was Lord put you out of sync with both of those sections. But nevertheless, Paul knew of many people who would be able to weasel their way into the church, who, in his own words, would make a shipwreck of their faith. He warns people of wolves in sheep's clothing. The only way the wolves can get in is by doing the things that the sheep do. The first and clearest of which is utter the words, Jesus is Lord. Paul is just making a general point. He's not being super specific. His point is just this. It's not just about what people utter, but it's the gift of salvation that must come from the Spirit. The Spirit gives the ability for us to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord, And before Paul even begins to talk about spiritual gifts, what he is saying is, before you get there, you need to realize that your ability to speak rightly of the Lord, your ability to know him, to see the goodness of his work and to entrust yourself to it is nothing but a gift of the Spirit. And it is far more important than anything else that you're going to get. You might question, why does Paul speak this way? Why not just say, our God, gifting in salvation is more important than any of the other spiritual gifts we might get. I think the reason is, again, because it's a way to speak about what we're doing when we speak. Because their issue was, well, we want tongues. We want to be able to give these utterances. We want to seem super spiritual in what we utter. And Paul is saying, the most spiritual thing you can do and the most spiritual thing that you can say is Jesus is Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. No matter what you make, friends, of the gifts of the Spirit, its use in the church, its place in the glorification of Jesus, how it relates to the word, any of it, know that the most important work of the Spirit is bringing us to salvation. Secondly, though, gifts are images of our God. Gifts are images of our God. Paul fronts not just our salvation, but before he even begins talking about gifts, he talks about our God. In order to rightly understand gifts, you don't need just to know what they're important for, but what they say about God. And frankly, of all the passages in the New Testament that come close to the sort of Trinitarian understanding that we want to uphold, This is one of them, although it's rarely mentioned when you hear people talk about the Trinity. Gifts are a very natural outgrowth of the very nature of God. He begins by talking about the Spirit. And here he highlights that there's a variety of different gifts. There's a number of different gifts that would come from the Spirit. But there is only one Spirit. The importance is not to speak about the Spirit here alone, I think, but to think about the nature of the gifts as a demonstration of the nature of God. For Paul, speaking of the Spirit means talking of gifts. The Spirit is a giver. The Spirit is one who brings the gifts of God to forbear upon us. It is in the Spirit that we receive the gift of salvation. As noted above, it is He who gives us the confession of Jesus as Lord. It is the Spirit that gives us regeneration and rebirth. It is the Spirit. Gives us the things that we need to understand freely given to us in God. But Paul has already mentioned back in chapter 2. Gifts, in general, are works of the Spirit. When he comes to the Lord, it is a picture of service. And again, we're reminded that the word Lord is almost always a shorthand for Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We're prone to read this as though in the Lord, there's a number of ways that we can serve him. After all, that's what we're doing, isn't it? We're finding ways to serve the Lord by serving his body. But just as the Spirit brings us gifts, it is the Lord who ironically does not receive service from us, but who comes to serve. As Jesus said, I've come not to be served, but to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus comes and serves us as prophet, priest, and king. He is our helper, our provider, our rescuer, our redeemer. He is our brother, our friend, a spring of wisdom for us. He comes to serve us. And he serves us in a multitude of ways. In doing so, he freely gives himself for us. And finally, Paul comes to God, who is the Father, and empowers all of these things in us through him. Whatever we do, we find that we are doing it precisely because God gives us the power to do so. When we use the gifts of the Spirit and the manner laid out for us by Jesus. It is God who gives us the power, the desire and the ability to carry them out. The Spirit provides the gifts. Jesus provides the example. And the God of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the one who empowers us to use those things. The three persons of the Trinity are intricately involved in the use of any of these gifts. The very nature of these gifts is meant, I think, to be a picture of that Trinitarian relationship, a variety of gifts, but one Spirit, one Lord, one God, multiple, but unified. This is the very nature of God, although Paul doesn't build that particular idea here. It's just a hop, skip, and a jump away. Spirit, Son, and Father all work together for one goal, for one cause, for one outcome, even if they do it in different ways, just as they are one being with one nature and one essence, but they are different manifestations of it. The right understanding and use of our gifts are meant to help us to understand in sort of an experiential way the somewhat ineffable nature of our God. There are many, many things in this world that are impossible to verbally explain to someone. I've had the time-honored tradition that every parent has of looking at their children and saying, you don't know how much I love you, right? And I can put it into words and I can write sonnets. I can't, I won't even try. That would be torture. That would show, this is how much I hate you. Read my sonnet. I love you and, and I can't tell you how much I love you, but you will realize it when you yourself have children. If the Lord grants you children, then you will understand how I feel about you. But it's only something that you learn in an experiential way. It's only something you learn by going through it yourself. No words can quite convey truly what the Trinity is. But these gifts are meant to be analogies to help us understand how the Lord works. There are a variety of different gifts, but there is one God who gives it. There's a variety of manifestations of the essence of the one God giving to us. Gifts are made and are for the image of our God. Thirdly, gifts are instituted for our good. They're instituted for our good. Before Paul gets to the multi-variable nature of the gifts, he notes that these are for our common good. It's to benefit the entirety of the congregation, not one person. This is, I think, one of the chief ways that we misunderstand the nature of the gift and the primary way in which we abuse the idea of gifts. We tend to see that the gift is for the elevation of the man or the woman who wields them and not for the people around and for. So we highlight the preacher or we highlight the giver or we highlight somebody who is excellent at prayer or we highlight somebody who is capable of healing. But this is not the important thing. There's times in the church we lament that there are not more preachers like Spurgeon or there's not more theologians like Augustine. It's not quite enough people with the heart of Amy Carmichael or the wit of Luther or the compassion of George Mueller. That's not totally misplaced, but it's also not that helpful. We don't need a Mueller again. We need the people of God to do what is placed before them. The Spirit has not given gifts to these people to highlight those who receive the gifts, but for the good of all who see their use. This was the chief mistake of the Corinthians, or at least I'm going to suppose that it is, given what we're going to read later. The same folks who wanted to make sure that they were well thought of, that they had a social standing within the church, that they they had this sort of way of people looking up to them and thinking that they're better and grander and more important than others. One of the chief ways that you would feel this way is by claiming that you've got this incredibly important gift of the Spirit. Look at how important I am. The Spirit entrusted me with this gift. The gifts given to you are not for you. They are not for your standing. They are not for others to think better of you or, what's worse, for you to think better about yourself. And they are given to you for others, to help them, to fortify them, to build them up in our most holy faith. This is why Paul lists the gifts he does here with this, this repeated phrase, to the one and then to another. Not all are given the gifts that they need. None of those men that I listed had everything that they needed in this life in order to make their way through it wholly faithful to Christ. Not all are given everything that they need. No one can fully function without everyone else in the church. The point isn't to make you, yourself, holy and complete in the Lord. The point is that the Spirit gives us gifts as He wants to give them, not to make you complete, but to make us complete we talk about this. When we go through membership interviews, membership classes, we talk about this. The Spirit could give you personally anything that He wanted. There's nothing holding the Spirit of God back from doing just that. He's not limited in what He passes out. Paul's very clear. The Spirit does this by His own will. He gives to each one individually as He wills, as He wants to. He can give you whatever He wants to give you. So ask yourself, why doesn't he give me all the gifts that are listed here? Why does the Spirit hold back from me? So that you would have to rely upon other people in this church. The Spirit purposely keeps you from gifts that you would be able to use for yourself so that you must rely upon another. This is why Paul recognizes us. He keeps saying, and to another. You might have one of these, but another has a different one. The point isn't the gifts that he mentions in this section. He mentions many of them. The point really isn't the gifts. It's not even deciding which ones you may or may not have. All of that is is a wrong function of this text, I think. This isn't a complete list of the gifts. We know it's not a complete list of the gifts because Paul has different lists elsewhere. He even, like towards the end of the, the text, lists completely different things that might be given to people. And in other places, like Romans, he lists different things there as well. There's no complete list of the gifts because it's not about the gifts. He uses here, I think, the more recognizable ones, the more flamboyant gifts, because it seems to be what the Corinthians are into. Gifts of speech, of knowledge, of wisdom, of prophecy. Healing, I think, would be pretty noticeable, right? Tongues are especially noticeable. Miracles, I think that you would take note of that you'll notice that he doesn't list generosity. He doesn't list mercy. He doesn't list kindness. He doesn't list encouragement as spiritual gifts here because those aren't the noticeable gifts. He's trying to get the Corinthians' attention, not about the gifts, but about the fact that they are given for the body of the church. And as the Spirit gives the gifts, as the Spirit makes them work, he gives them out to whom he wills. He does this not so that you individually would be built up so that you can say, hey, I am a worker of miracles or I speak in tongues or I am one who is a prophet in the church. He does it so the body of Jesus Christ might be built up. The point here is not to tell us what gifts are possible or which ones should be sought after or which ones we should look for in our lives, but rather this. The Spirit gives to the church what it needs to function. You are not to worry about your gift, but you are to worry about how to serve one another. And trust that the Spirit itself will supply you with everything you need. Fourth, gifts are then indispensable to the body. And this leads directly to this metaphor that Paul uses considerably here the church as the body of Jesus Christ. The metaphor here takes a slightly different turn than it does elsewhere, and and I think even that we heard originally in this letter back in chapter nine, or excuse me, back in in chapter 11. In other places, the body metaphor is meant to speak either about the preeminence or the authority or as Jesus as the source of our growth, we grow into him, so he is our head, we submit to him. But here, the picture is not about Christ as the head of the church so much as it is just focusing on the fact that the church is the body of Jesus Christ. And Paul emphasizes that the body is something of a, frankly, a cobbled together Frankensteinish sort of body. You remember Frankenstein's monster. It's stapled and stitched together from disparate parts. That's what Paul says happens with us. We are all made into one body. We are stitched together in this way, although we are all different. He lists major differences in these people, Jews and Greeks and slaves and free, and all are brought together, stitched together into one thing and one entity. And this is important, though. It's, it's not disadvantageous. It is actually an incredibly importantly good thing, because as the metaphor goes, bodies aren't all one thing they can't all be one thing. Hands and ears are different, and even though they are different, they are still a part of the body, but all of the body needs to function as well as it can. Needs those disparate parts to do what they do. And you might think that some parts are more important than others, but you need all of those parts. And this multivarious way about the body is essential for the body to function as it ought to function. So we, likewise, are all different, but those differences are needed to make the body function as the Lord intends for it to function. At the very least, friends, don't be disappointed. Don't be let down that you are not more like someone else in the body. You may wish that you had more knowledge. You may wish you had somebody else's wisdom. You may wish that you had their demeanor, their generosity, their ability for mercy, their ability for a kind word when you seem stuck and lost. But each one has what the Spirit has deemed good to give to them. And that means you as well. There's no use being an eye and wishing you were an ear, or being a liver and pretending you're the heart. It does no one any good. Not only do these differences found in us make us better suited to work together, again, the emphasis has to be on making us work together and being dependent upon one another. The eye can't say that it's it's not a part in some negative sense, nor can it say that we can get rid of some other parts because clearly they're not important. The head can't look at the feet and say, because you you dummies don't think, I don't need you. It doesn't mean that the body functions better that way. It just means that the head is, well, somewhat puffed up. The hands need the liver. The head needs the feet. Paul makes this point by leaving the metaphor, although I don't think he obviously does so. When he says the weaker parts are indispensable. I, I think that he isn't talking about the body anymore as a metaphor. I think he's talking specifically about the people of the church. Remember, he used this term weaker to refer to people within the church earlier, and I think he's doing so here. He's talking about the people in Corinth. You might think that those weaker people, people are unneeded. They, they don't have a great deal of knowledge. And the knowledge that they do have is costing the strong difficulties If only we all had knowledge, if only we were super holy, all of us, if only we were where we needed to be. And Paul might say, but then where would the teachers go if there were no ignorant people? If there weren't people who needed to be taught, what would we do with teachers? If there weren't people who needed to be encouraged, where would the encouragers go? You might say that in heaven, we're not going to need these things. Well, okay, but we're not in heaven. We are here. And those who are weaker who are, are, are quite necessarily indispensable because they allow gifts to be used and seen. Those people who might embarrass us or might be ashamed of their status, if we want to be a people who are strong, we might be embarrassed by the weaker among us. If we want to be a people who are knowledgeable, we might be embarrassed by those who fail in knowledge among us. If we want to be a people who are holy, we might be embarrassed by those who struggle with holiness. Whatever there is lack, it is these that we work harder for, not out of embarrassment, but as Paul says, a way to honor them, to show them that they are indeed just as important as everybody else. The thought is, not just to keep them out of the light, to keep them in the back where no one can see them because we are ashamed that they are among us, but rather to show them as honored and important. Folks within this church are not anchors. As the Hollies saying, he yeah, ain't heavy, he's my brother. I just listened to Hollies this morning, so you'll forgive me. So Paul notes that these gifts are given so that honor might be shown one to another and especially to the weaker parts of the body. It's repeated in numerous ways at numerous times within the church. Someone's lost their job or has a large bill come in. They're in need. Yet we have people and our own funds to help these folks. And so we're able to honor them. To take this in somewhat an odd direction, honor is oftentimes shown in money. So take, for instance, 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That double honor... Is not some sort of certificate that you give to elders, although certificates are nice. It's not a certificate. He's quite clearly, if you read on, talking about giving money. And I'm not saying this for my own benefit because I am more than honored by this church, but to give money, to, to allow money to exchange place in one direction is to show honor to somebody. To have people who are needy in the church and to help them in their need is to show them honor. And this might seem like it is something that is really easy and straightforward for us, but that's because we're standing on a long line of Christian tradition of this kind of thing happening. This was not always how it happened in the first century. If you are needy, do not be ashamed of that. Do you not think that the Lord has made you this way so that others might be able to show you honor in giving and in kindness and in mercy and in generosity? Where would we be if we didn't have needy people among us? Needy spiritually, needy emotionally, needy physically, needy financially. If we didn't have those, think of how impoverished we would be in being sown together. If each of us was complete individually, we wouldn't need one another. But as it is, we are to suffer together, to rejoice together, to be honored together. So long as we are united by our gifts and we use them for the common good, these gifts are indispensable for the body. By them we are stitched together. We are bound together as hands are to arms are to chests. Each part might be stronger in one area so that it might help those who are weaker in that area, that we might all come to rely upon one another in the spirit. If not for this, there would be no body. Gifts are indispensable for they make us a body. And finally, fifth, gifts are instigated by God. The last bit of our chapter is meant in a clever way to uh, sort of introduce us and to slide us into chapter 13, which I'm not going to get into today. There is a, a pining for certain gifts here, and Paul's going to say there is one gift that is greater than them all. You want the best ones, right? Well, here, desire this one. This leaves us on a bit of a cliffhanger, although... I'm guessing that most of you probably know where we're going with it. But if not, wait till next week. But even if we are to push for the greatest of these gifts, we we are first and foremost to realize that the gifts themselves and the arrangement of those gifts clearly comes from God. They just, they move from God. It is not just the Spirit who gives them as as He wills, but, but all of God works to give us the gifts that we have. They're not left up to men. Men and women, no matter how gifted, are not ultimately to be honored for that gift, but God is to be honored, for he is the one who has given it. All of these things come from God. Apostles and teachers and prophets, gifts of miracles, healing, administration, tongues. If you have one, if you have been entrusted with this, it is because God has decided that you should have it, not because it was latently a part of who you were. So you might say, well, what if I don't think I have one? Or at least one that is desired and honored among the body. And again, I, would, I think Paul says here, so what? Not all can be these things. Because if everyone were a teacher, there would be no one to learn. If everyone was filled with assurance, there would be no one to encourage. So friends, be glad for the gifts that others have. That they might help where you lack. And be grateful for where you lack. So that you can give others the chance to serve. For all these things are arranged by God for the good of all. Those who have need those who don't. Those who don't have need those who have. Therefore, God has lovingly stitched us together. We are his handiwork made into his people. And notice how wonderful all of this is for us. I probably, not more than all, but more than many in here, if not most in here, have felt a calling to a specific ministry in the church. And so, I will be quite honest with you, I've worried, like, what if that is taken from me? Because it's a really specific thing, right? Like, it's not writing, it's speaking. So what happens if I get throat cancer? What happens if I'm in an accident? What happens if I have a stroke what happens if, if somehow the thing that I feel called to do is taken from me? You know, the kind of thing where if I can't do this, I don't know who I am. The same kind of question is just for people who might generally feel worthless because you, you can't provide as much as others. can't provide financially as much as others. Or you don't see how you can help out one another. You don't think that you are capable of doing much. Or because God has put you in a situation where you, you just feel like you are a leech on the rest of the people. But remember, all of this is within God's overarching plan. The Lord has given you what you have, when you have it, and how you have it. It is the Lord's doing. And so if he has given others more, be content with what you have, but also realize that he has placed you there as a way to show your value and your honor. What Paul is doing is inverting all of this. We think that the people who are worth more honor, the people who are worth more value, are the people who have something to give. And Paul is quite clearly saying God has arranged it so in the church, that can't possibly be true the people who are most valued are the people who allow these gifts to shine and those people are the people who the world would call worthless the people the world would say have very little value God's overarching plan is to invert all of that and he has placed you where you are so that his love can shine in you you are not because you are weaker because you have less, less valuable in God's sight. As a matter of fact, what Paul is stressing to you is you are more valuable. That might be a little bit much, but at least you're valued highly. You're not less valuable, simply because you don't have gifts that other people have. You search for gifts, earnestly desire the higher gifts. He's going to show you a still more excellent way. I'm pretty sure that when we turn to chapter 13, you're going to find that serving in the nursery is the highest spiritual gift. I'll put that out for you. Just think about it. Concern yourself with that. There is a more excellent way. The greatest gift that we have to give is to love one another and to honor one another in these things. So whatever gift you may have, Whatever you may do for this body of believers, do it because God has given to you the desire, because God has given you the ability to do that. Whether it is as great as, and we haven't talked about whether these gifts cease, we haven't talked about whether they're continued today, because frankly, it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about some of that in chapter 14. We're not going to talk about that because what we need to see here is not about the gifts themselves but about the importance of using them to serve the church and to serve one another. You are given exactly what you need to help others in this body. Do that for the glory of God, for this is how the Spirit has gifted you. Let us pray. Father, let us have the gifts that you desire to give to us, Lord, but not for our pride or for our position. Let us gratefully rejoice In one another's giftedness, knowing that it is given for our good, certain that we will use it to honor one another. In all things, whether you have gifted us or left us bereft, as we might see it here, let us rejoice in the work you have given your church, that all might glorify our God, who is the giver of every good gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with us and sing our song of response. Be thou my vision.